and especially when you play the way Georgia plays on offense, where you're kind of predicated on the run, that part is vital. So it's a potentially really harmful injury to them as a team this year, but they also have a lot of talent everywhere else on offense where they could still overcome it. The Zamir White injury, which took place over this past weekend's scrimmage, has everyone in the Bulldog Nation a bit concerned, and rightfully so. White was ranked as the nation's number one running back for the 2018 signing class. And as you'll hear in this interview between our co-host Will Leach and Seth Emerson, staff writer for The Athletic covering UGA Sports, Seth believes that White might have eventually assumed the number two running back slot behind DeAndre Swift for the 2018 season. It is a setback, and you feel terrible for a kid like Zamir, but he is in good hands with the Georgia sports medicine and orthopedic staff. As for the Georgia offense, you'll hear in this episode that it, too, is also in great hands as the dogs try to capitalize on their stout offensive line, experienced receivers, and a backfield that still touts four stud running backs as the 2018 season draws near. Hey there, my name is Scott Duvall, and you're listening to episode 141 of the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. This is the third year that Will and Seth have had their preseason conversation, and we are happy to bring it to you once again. Whereas a lot of our recent shows have focused on a little bit of Georgia news and a lot of general SEC coverage, this 40-minute episode is 100% rock-solid UGA information coming straight from the man himself, Seth Emerson. Make sure to follow Seth on Twitter, at Seth W. Emerson, and subscribe to The Athletic to read more of his in-depth Bulldog coverage. We'll have a link in the profile for that. So without any further delay, I present to you the 2018 Will Leach, Seth Emerson interview. All right. Hello. I think Scott already did the intro, so I am here with the great Seth Emerson. Seth, I'm honored to have our weekly chat, our yearly chat. Basically, every year right before the season starts, you and I do this podcast, and then like a week later, we go have beverages, and I talk about how terrible my questions were for you and how much better of a reporter (laughs) you are than I am. So, hello. Thank you for indulging me this annual tradition once again. Your questions are always great, Will. I don't know what you're talking about. We usually talk about career and life anyway. Yes, that's true. Okay. The last time we talked, we talked about career, I think, and you were one of the people who caused me to make this career choice. Well, that's, that's a good way to go in. Uh, don't say cause. Say, uh, if it turns out great, <laughs> if it turns out great, you're welcome. And if it turns out terribly, I've never met you, and we've never actually talked ever in our entire lives. Uh, you, I remember when you were, you were, you were with, uh, Do- uh, not with Dog Nation, with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Which of which was a uh, Dog Nation was a subsidiary. That's uh, but when you right. were there, you uh, you you talked about potentially going to the athletic. Now that you're there, I have to say I've been a reader of yours for a long time. I think you uh, I've always kind of thought you are the class of the beat. What you? No offense to everybody else, all sorts of good dudes and good people, good ladies doing doing stuff there. But I've always thought you're the best one. Now that you're the athletic, I have noticed. I uh, now that I, I'm just stating facts, man. I've noticed that now that you're athletic. Obviously, the same basic stuff that the the nuts and the bolts are always there, but that's that have always been there are there. It does seem to me you've expanded the scope uh, a little bit and are doing things less because um, theoretically speaking, uh, it might yeah. be demanded by uh, by others that understand the beat less and more that you're just actually trying to give the stuff that fans actually want. Yeah, I, I think that is very astute. The, the approach at the athletic is less is more quality over quantity. So whereas I might be writing two or three stories a day during the season, now I'm going to tend to write five or six or seven a week 
but they're all going to be good stories. They, they don't want you writing a story unless people are going to read it and say, all right, I'm, you know, my subscription is worth reading that or, (laughs) you know, something along those lines. Um, they would rather you spend a couple days, three days, even a week working on something really meaty and substantive than spend that week just churning out average stories, which unfortunately I felt like I was doing sometimes just because of the nature of the beast. And this goes for a lot of places that are non-subscription model right now, um, that are that way is that it's predicated on page views and clicks because it's, it's free, but they need the advertising. So they need to go to the advertisers and say, we had this many page views last month. So they want you to turn out more and more stories. And, you know, that's fine. I understand that that's the model. I preferred the athletic, uh, even though it's subscription based, because as a writer, I can take more time to work on stuff. Um, I'm not going to just immediately burp out a story every time Kirby Smart says something. I'm going to say, all right, here's what Kirby Smart said, but here's what I think it means, taking it a little further. And also to kind of get back to how much can change in a few months, I was debating this move March, April, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, we, you know, when you and I went out and you were one of the first people, and I really respect your opinion because, I mean, you know, who's better positioned than you? That little website you once started back mm-hmm. last decade. Um, you know, to, to have an opinion on it, um, and whether a startup would work and everything, but you were kind of very much in favor of doing this. I I remember, and I'm one of these people who reaches out to a whole bunch of people for advice. And I I reached out to a whole bunch of people in my circle for advice on this, on whether to make the move. And there were really only two people who told me, I don't know about this. I don't know if you should do this. One of them got a subscription like a, a month or two ago and has pretty much changed his mind. The other person, somebody in the business was just announced as a hire by the athletic today. So <laughs> it, that's just kind of, yes. it, it's going well is what yeah. I'm saying. Okay. Well, well, this is a terrible time to tell you this, but I think you've made a horrible mistake and well, whatever, it'll, <laughs> it'll all work out uh, for me. That's right for you. And I'm happy things are going well for you. But as a reader, uh, I am, it is exciting for me because I mean, I always thought yourself was good. Your stuff is better, and I think it's worthwhile as someone that follows this team. It really feels very meaty uh, in a way that I think I would just encourage everyone to subscribe. But don't read Stu Mandel. Don't read Stu Mandel. He's a, he's like a, he's a Northwestern guy. You can't pay attention to those Northwestern people. Um, okay, so speak read of, Stewart. Read Stewart. I can't <laughs> let that go unpacked. I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying that, like you know, it's it's true. It's nice to see some Northwestern grads getting a run in the media jungle. Okay, or Missouri people. Yeah, Missouri people. Missouri and Syracuse. Don't forget Syracuse yeah. either. Um, okay, anyway, so let's get talking about some Georgia uh, stuff. Everyone subscribe. You get to read all this stuff. You'll be happy. Uh, the big two big news items are kind of connected. Uh, we were talking on the early afternoon of Monday, August 20th. The big thing was, of course, Samir White's knee injury and then Kirby Smart's reaction uh, to it, specifically and how it reacted to the media. Uh, now, I have long, throughout most of my uh, kind of media career, been of the belief that part of the job of the media is actually to get yelled at. Like, I feel like that's part of the job, right? The same way right. that refs are part of the job to get yelled at. Like, you're supposed to, like, you people get out their aggressions at you. I think there are 
differences and there are exceptions to that rule, particularly for minority and female people in uh, female sports writers uh, in in sports. Uh, but I do think, generally speaking, it is almost. A, I figure every time I get yelled at by someone, I feel like it's the closest I will come to be doing a public service. <laughs> I am here to be yelled at at you. But what I have found uh, in recent years, like recent months to years, I can't pinpoint a potential incident that may have actually started all this, is press criticism is becoming more and more incoherent. And which is to say, when I saw Kirby Smart's rant about uh, Zamir White, and listen, we've talked about Kirby's kind of discussions with the media in the past, and I think, generally speaking, we both thought there's been an improvement. I thought he was terrific at SEC Media Days, for example, this year, where he kind of came mm-hmm. in and like was a little defensive the first couple of years and was weird about stuff. But he seemed to be perhaps a little bit more comfortable in his own skin, seemed to be more more kind of yeah. relaxed. And is that an accurate representation? You would know better than me, but it seemed that way to me. Yes. Okay. And good. here's what I think happened Saturday. Okay. So number yeah, one, yes. I, I mean, I guess should we assume anyone listened to this? All right. Do we need to reset the scene? I want to. Re- I want to reset the scene very briefly, it, uh, just to say, just to say that it yeah. seemed to be that what he was doing was angry that the because basically Zamir White's injury happened at a practice that was not open to the media but was open to donors, right. and so donors being donors, I had like message boards or texting people, word got out like immediately. So the press doing yeah. their jobs reported on that. And then he took it out on you guys, which to me struck me as not only wrong, but like kind of incoherent. Well, here's the thing. None of us really did run with it. It was on our message boards. Um, I don't have a message board on the athletic. But, you know, I kind of use Twitter for that. Some people were tweeting at me. And the only thing I did was, and we're sitting here going, all right, we're getting Kirby like minutes after the scrimmage. So I'm going to hold tight. Let's wait on this. We've gone back and forth with Kirby on this before. He doesn't like us reporting stuff before they've essentially had a chance to reach the family. And I've said, okay, you know, I mean, if, if something happens in real time, I'm here's where I'll work with you. So I didn't say anything. The closest I came was I tweeted something just to basically get people to off my back off Twitter <laughs> to say, we're going to get Kirby top of the hour. We will certainly ask him about injuries. I'm not ready to report anything until that. I think the furthest any of my other beat colleagues went was to like answer people who were going to message board saying, Hey, I heard Zamir white got hurt at the scrimmage. So no one did a story as far as I know. Um, Kirby, I don't, I, I guess there was a miscommunication. I don't think he gets on his phone literally in between. Cause he came right to the press conference. You know, it's not like he goes to his office, sits down, you know, has a drink, reads our stuff, and then comes and meets with us. He went right there. I think there must have been some sort of miscommunication, or he assumed something that wasn't actually in evidence. But, yeah, what happened was people who were donors who were at the scrimmage were reporting that Zamir got hurt, and it didn't look good, but none of us did. I also think Kirby, as a coach, as a guy who – you know, I mean, Zamir White was already coming off an ACL injury and had battled back, and he 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 knew. I mean, they I'm sure they did a field test right away, and the MRI only just confirmed it like an hour or two after the press conference. He knew what was coming, and he was frustrated. And I think he he kind of took it out on us. You can say, well, you know, he needs to, you know, he needs to get better control and not do that next time, but. 
I do understand where he was coming from. I think also immediately, like, so he had like a 14 minute press conference. He, he went off on one of my beat colleagues who asked him, you know, was it usual for Zamir White to be on putts, to cover putts? And then he kind of seized on that. Well, immediately after it ended, um, it was Anthony Dasher of UGSports.com who asked the question. Kirby went over to Anthony, like patted him on the knee and said, are we good? And then Anthony and Kirby went into the hallway and talked for about another minute. And I, I basically, I, I, I think we understand, I think we understand each other is the way I would put it, the reporters and Kirby, that I, I think he was really frustrated. You know, this wasn't like about a depth chart thing. You know, this wasn't the media reporting something on a depth chart or whatever. This was a kid suffering an ACL injury, his second ACL injury in nine months and Kirby was upset about it. Um, if, if he had it all over to do again, I think he'd handle it differently, but it's also hard to say that when, you know, I mean, it, it happened like probably an hour or two before he got there and he didn't really have a chance to collect himself. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, I don't want to come off like I'm I apologizing. Know, I know you're not. I know. I understand. But even, happened. even the way that story is told a little bit, the idea of like in public with everybody watching and all the cameras on, he hammers the guy and then, goes off to the side and say, are we cool? Like, everything's all right. Like, that feels, I mean, that's the kind of, in a world where widespread frustration with the press doing yeah. all the terrible things they're doing, that rubs me the wrong way, I will confess. Um, yeah. I understand yeah. that and, he's frustrated. And I, think it's fair to, I, I, I understand that. And I think it's fair to say that. I think there are a few of us, you know, in the, in, on the beat kind of said, hey, said that too in real, in real time. Like when we got upstairs to write stories and we're sitting around going, you know, what was that? Why, why, you know, but on the other hand, he did it like when there could still conceivably be cameras on to see him go up to Anthony and do that. The other thing is that to get back to what you were saying about the press's job to get yelled at, that was the punt question, the punt cover question to a team. The Kirby may think that wasn't a good question. And there may be a bunch of fans who agree that it was a bad question. Of course, you still want good players on special teams, but my Twitter feed was also lit up and there were message boards lit up with fans saying, why was Amir white on pun coverage? So it's the job of the media in that instance to kind of represent the fans and take the hit. And you know, if, if Kirby wants to send the message that no, it's a dumb question, then yeah, we're the ones that take a hit. And that happens all the time in media where we have to represent the fans and ask what some people may consider to be a stupid, ridiculous question. Okay, so let's talk about actual football things now and not how much of a jerk all of you guys are. When, yeah, thank you. <laughs> first, let's talk about how Zamir White's injury actually affects everything. Clearly, like they were excited about him in camp, but they have running back depth but it's funny because a lot of the things were like a lot, a lot of the previews have been like the idea well they're losing chubb and michelle which obviously is a lot of senior leadership and i'm going to talk about that in a bit as well but they've got all these stable of running backs for what it's worth they still have plenty but they're now they're short one they were excited about him and they would have used him i would say that a healthy zamir white if you take experience aside but even maybe even if you figure in experience because what we've seen freshman running backs do special things here before a healthy Zamir white was, you know, when all was said and done, potentially the one B to John Dre Swift's one, a this year, I, I think he's the second best, um, potentially like good enough to push Swift. <laughs> uh, so now you take that out of the equation. They're still deep. Now they only have four scholarship tailbacks, 
healthy now, but the number four guy is either James Cook, who's this freshman who was a four star, um, or Brian Harrion, who's a junior who the first time he ever touched the ball as a college player scored a touchdown against North Carolina in the Georgia Dome two years ago. They're not as potent on offense without Zamir White, but they still could be pretty good. I think this puts a, a lot of an onus on Elijah Holyfield to be pretty good and to take you know, some of the pressure off DeAndre Swift. Um, I think before we were kind of going into the season expecting that it would be DeAndre Swift and then Holyfield would be the second guy, but you know, you don't lose anything when Zamir White comes in next. And, you know, maybe you'd kind of, I would have expected carries to be kind of split between Zamir White and Elijah Holyfield and maybe the other two guys. Now it's, it's a pretty clear pecking order of Holyfield, the number two guy. And in today's college football, that's important. You got to have multiple guys. I mean, I don't think Georgia's offense is as good next year or last year. If you take either Chubb or Michelle off. And if you take DeAndre Swift off, who was so great as a number three tailback, you know, they're potentially not as good. I mean, he's the guy who had the longest touchdown play, I think, in the SEC championship win over Auburn. So it's just, and especially when you play the way Georgia plays on offense, where you're kind of predicated on the run, that part is vital. So it's a potentially really harmful injury to them as a team this year, but they also have a lot of talent everywhere else on offense where they could still overcome it. Well, that leads into, it's nice to have an annual quarterback discussion. <laughs> the idea that I, I, I love, it's, I love the idea that even after a guy comes that close to winning the national championship game, uh, there's still questions and there's still like, maybe we should try this guy. To me, one of the most fascinating things about the quarterback situation is that there's no third quarterback. Like that is, it really kind of right. blows my mind a little bit. Does the fact that they don't have a third quarterback and a reminder with Samir White, who again had had knee troubles before, but it was the other knee, things can just happen. Like nobody touched him. It's football. It's a brutal yeah. sport. Strange things happen all the time. The idea that there is no third quarterback, does that change the way that they use fields at all? Like you hear a lot being like, well, they'll try him and other stuff because he's fields. He's such a great athlete. Uh, but if you have no third quarterback, it feels like you now have to protect two guys really well. Yeah. Jim Cheney made that exact point earlier this month or one kind of availability with him. Um, he was talking about Justin Fields as a dual threat, but he did kind of pump the brakes on it. He said, well, we're not exactly deep at quarterback and you tend to get hurt when you run at quarterback. So we kind of have to be careful about that. I mean, keep in mind, Jake Fromm, takes over and leads the team as far as he does only because Jacob Eason gets hurt running out of bounds and he wasn't even a running quarterback. So you put Justin Fields in that situation is he's more apt to do that. So I, I don't know. I mean, how does that mean they're extra careful with him and he doesn't run as much as you would expect? Yeah. I mean, maybe that is the case. On the other hand, like I think Jacob Eason was hurt when he scrambled you can't stop Justin Fields from just innately scrambling if he's if he's back there and he's pressured and there's no pass to make and he just runs. So at some level, you can't really stop that. I, I do think I, everything I've heard to this point is that Fromm has taken most of the snaps with the ones that he's had a good camp. And Fields has looked good too, but he's still learning things and still doing maybe a little bit more on the fly rather than kind of relying on, on the playbook. Um, he, he's learning like any freshman would. So I, I expect Fromm to be the starter. I expect you to see fields 
uh, a little bit against Austin P and, and then they'll kind of go from there. It's amazing to me. I already thought the receivers were going to be all right. Right? I felt like, like obviously you're losing, you're losing wins, but there's still guys here that we saw plenty of last year. I think the Ridley's kind of emergence in the national championship game got people excited about him. But then you get Demetrius Robertson, and it, it was it's weird. I know the NCAA is is um, quixotic, quixotic. We'll say we'll say they are uh, erratic mm-hmm. sometimes. Uh, it feels like we went from oh yeah he's not going to be cleared to play immediately to oh yeah it's happening like right now he's here he's in practice at this moment yeah unusually yeah. quickly. Uh, were they prepared for that? Were they surprised that uh, that he was there, or were they kind of already already ready to just kind of get him right in? Well, no, it went from, hey, Demetrius Robertson's coming, and we, he probably won't be able to play this year, but, you know, what the hell, we'll, we'll try, to as they watched the NCAA give out waivers to players left and right, like in similar positions, it became, hey, if that guy's getting a waiver, why wouldn't Demetrius? And so I think by the time it came down, it was not this past Friday, but two Fridays before that, by the time the waiver came down, I, I think at that point, no one was surprised. I think people would have been surprised if it wasn't granted just because of the way it was going elsewhere. The NCAA, giving credit, is in a giving mood. They are moving towards officially allowing kids to transfer once and not have to sit out a season. And then I guess they would penalize them after that, which I guess that seems reasonable so that kids aren't you know moving around and playing four years at four different schools. But they they haven't put that rule into effect yet, but for all intents and purposes, they have because they're granting waivers to guys. I mean, by rule, Demetrius Robertson shouldn't be eligible this year. He played only the first two games at Cal last year, and so he gets a medical red shirt. And I think that did figure heavily into the NCAA saying, "All right, yeah, we're not going to let him. You know, we're not going to have him sit out two straight years, essentially." But by rule that's not supposed to figure into it. He only decided to transfer over the summer, I think like in June, and only arrived at Georgia in, or decided on Georgia in July. Um, but he can play because the NCAA is in a generous mood and, and give them credit for that. So is he instantly their one, two? Is he, is he one of the top two wide receivers right now? Uh, I would say that he's one of their top four, potentially – their top one. Um, I just, when, when I look at their top four, Terry Godwin, assuming he's healthy, he's been nicked up this preseason with a knee thing, but he should be, you know, I don't know, maybe he doesn't go all the way against Austin P, but by South Carolina, I think he'll be out there. Nicole Hardman, who I think will have a breakout year because his second full season as a receiver, he knows the position now and he's got great ability. Riley Ridley, who kind of figures in as their best possession receiver at this point, he was the leading catcher and receiving yards guy in the national championship game. And then Robertson, um, I think you, you take those four and that's a, that's a really good top four. And I can't sit here and predict with any confidence, which of those four will end up being the team's leading receiver this year. Oh, the offensive line, we have, uh, you took a great question in your mailbag uh, the other day asking if this was maybe the best Georgia offensive line of all time. Uh, the fact is probably not. It's it's probably not. I think you answered pretty clearly. It's not, probably not. But the fact that that question is even being asked <laughs> is maybe right. a, a pretty yeah. good sign moving forward. And the thing that's funny about that is it feels like that's something that's going to get even better over uh, as, as the recruits all kind of come in and filter in and get experience. That feels still like the centerpiece to everything this offense is going to be doing moving forward. 
Yeah, I, I think that's the case. I mean, if you look two years ahead and Andrew Thomas, um, who's a sophomore now moving over to left tackle, if he were still around for his senior year, that would be like, that would be right there on paper, the best in Georgia history, potentially. I just, I think a lot of people don't expect him to stick around for a senior year because he's that good. Um, yeah, I mean, Sam Pittman is recruiting like crazy, but they're also, by the way, assuming this is the way they roll them out there this year, they're going to be relying in Kendall Baker and Lamont Galliard, two of their starters, two of the guys that started all of last year, two guys who weren't like big time recruits coming out of high school. In fact, Lamont Galliard was a defensive lineman. Kendall Baker was too. And then he switched late in the late in his high school career. So they kind of speak to, you can still develop and Sam Pittman besides recruiting his butt off is also developing these guys pretty well. So I mean, the, the dude, everyone I talked to, and I did a story about him over the summer, but not only do people love him as a person, but the dude is like so respected. I think when Kirby Smart put together his, his first staff at Georgia two and a half years ago, he hit some home runs um, in a lot of spots, but the biggest one I think was Sam Pittman at O-line coach. That guy's just, I mean, he's, he really seems like he's one of the top two or three O-line coaches at the college level. Going to the defense, they lost a lot of guys, but of course, this is where this is where everybody's kind of filtering in. It's getting more about you. Look around the defense, you're like, well, okay, they lost guys here, and of course, they lost Roquan, but there's so much talent everywhere. But this is a spot, right, where particularly I'd say in the secondary, where if there is something that doesn't emerge, I want to get into the larger discussion yeah. of, uh, of emerging and leaders and so on in a bit. But if there's someone that doesn't emerge or become that next, take that next step forward, I feel like it's the secondary where they probably need that most. I think Kirby Smart's even talked about that, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I think they're worried about their depth a little bit in the secondary um, and whether they can absorb an injury or two. I think they're feeling pretty good about their first team secondary, but they haven't felt great about the second team, which, you know, you don't really play those guys much because you don't rotate much in the secondary. But again, it gets back to injuries. We're, we're talking about this media wise. Um, a few of us media boys <laughs> the other day, like what would be the one injury that would be the worst for Georgia? And somebody posited that it would be Andrew Thomas. Cause then what are you doing? You're moving someone to left tackle and, you know, who knows what happens there. But I said, if they've still got some talent there, yeah, you don't want him to get hurt. I say DeAndre Baker getting hurt at cornerback would be the biggest loss for this team because he and J.R. Reed, the junior safety, guy played strong safety last year, are the only two starters returning. They're really going to rely on those two guys to kind of be the anchors and especially for DeAndre Baker to be the anchor on his side of the field. I mean, he didn't allow a touchdown last year to his guy in like man or zone coverage. Um, if, if you take him out, I mean, you're, you're starting either a true freshman like Tyson Campbell or Mark Webb, a guy who is a sophomore who was a, was moved over from receiver last year during the season or um, Eric Stokes, who's a second year guy. I mean, they're, you know, it, it's a lot easier to kind of transition these guys in to starting spots when you've got a, senior potential all American on the other side of the field. So I, I think that's what they've got going for them back there in the secondary. They just need to make sure that Andrew Baker stays healthy and J.R. Reed too, because he provides leadership back there. I think we talked about that leadership and I think that feels, that feels 
I've had a lot of people make the argument from the outside that obviously Georgia is building towards something, and obviously last year was amazing. But the thing that made last year so amazing was not just all, it was not just Kirby Smart, and it was not just the new talent that came in. It was the combination of Chubb and Michelle coming back, and a lot of those great seniors mm-hmm. ma- making those big steps. A guy like Roquan making a big step forward, and these guys that came in from the previous administration maturing right as a lot of these emerging talents were coming in. And some of those guys are gone. Do you think there's a possibility this could be like a gap year in the idea of last year was the best what was left of Rick and the emergence of what Kirby Smart has coming? This year, there's a lot less Rick stuff. And now, and you're still a year or two away from having the full smart experience in there. Do you see that possibility as kind of a gap year uh, moving forward? It's a possibility. I wouldn't say it's a probability, but I, I, I do waver back and forth between whether I would pick this team to go 10 and two or, you know, say, Hey, what the hell, you know, 12 and zero, um, going into, you know, the SEC championship game. Cause I, I say 10 and two and even, you know, I, people look at scans at me and it's like, well, who are they going to lose to? And I'm like, well, they got to go to LSU in South Carolina. Auburn's preseason number nine. Um, and, you know, there, there's possible games where they could trip up on the road to uh, Missouri, even Kentucky. And then, you know, no one wants to talk about Florida in late October, but what if Dan Mullen has that thing turned around? What if he figures out the quarterback spot before then? So it, there's a lot of potential stumbling blocks. I would favor Georgia in all their games this year if that game was opening weekend but they're not all opening weekend. Things could surprise us. And, and I think there are enough questions about various spots at Georgia, like defensive line depth. What if they do have a bad injury or two? I mean, we've been talking about Zamir White already. I think this team already in 2018 has worse injury luck than they had 2016 and 2017 combined under Kirby Smart. What if that continues? Um, what if they do miss leadership that – left with guys last year and what if they miss Roquan Smith more than people expect I mean Roquan Smith he was so good and he played by the way the middle of the field on defense which means when you've got someone that smart and that high of football IQ who just kind of knows where the play is going and he starts in the middle of the field he, he can make so many plays both ends up back how much do they miss that? I think there's just enough questions about this year's team, particularly on defense, but some on offense, some on special teams that you say, yeah, I, I, I think you'd have a few games on upset alert and say, I, I could see things turning the wrong way a, a few more times than people would expect. Okay. And this leads me to the, the last little bit here, which is last year, <laughs> that last game, like I know that there has been a hesitance, and I think quite understandably, to see the loss to Alabama, to see that last play as different than 2012. In the idea that 2012, and I understand that, I get the argument for it. 2012 yeah. was the; it felt like everything was kind of landed their way that year. It's not like they were they were on the upward swing that they are now, and. 
totally understand that. Uh, and and frankly, if that would have been a team other than Notre Dame in the national championship game, a team that ultimately got stomped by Alabama, people might not even like if Notre Dame would have won that game or if they'd have played like a really great Oklahoma or Ohio State team or something, they might not. Have, everyone just assumes Georgia would have won that national championship game if they'd have played Notre Dame because that team was not so good, and Manti Teo was still reeling about the fact that he was about to get caught. <clears throat> but um, anyway, my thing about last year is, while I understand that this is on the upward swing for them, and everyone and everyone feels like, oh, that's a blip, and there's something happening, and we all are excited, this is the George everybody wanted, it is still, A, the worst possible way to lose a football game <laughs> like I think I know that everyone's so excited it's just it's I can't I've I spent a lot I, I was having a conversation with some friends of mine when I was doing my Sports Illustrated show a couple weeks ago of whether what's a harder way to lose a football game than that in that situation and I think we we just kind of landed on the band is on the field <laughs> like it was really hard yeah. to find like a worse <laughs> possible way to be able to lose that game and then of course you do it to Alabama the, the team you're trying to be uh, so desperately you do it in Georgia, you do it during this dream season. We just had this Rose Bowl. The devastation of that loss has been tempered because there's all this understanding that good stuff is coming forward. It's going to get better, and they're going to get that title that they want so desperately. It is worth reminding that last year, everything did land kind of perfect, right? The schedule landed perfect. You got that Notre Dame win, and then you had Tennessee bat falling back. You had Florida falling back. You had Georgia Tech falling back. You had you caught Auburn. Uh, you lost Auburn at home. We got another chance at them uh, to play in Georgia. There is a sense that last year is was that loss was painful, but it can be put aside because a championship is coming. My fear of that, knowing the Georgia fan base as I do and as you do, is there is this understanding because they're fa- they're probably going to be favored in every single game this year, and there's this idea they're going to be twelve and zero. The idea if something goes wrong, which happens all the time in college football and in sports altogether, if something goes wrong and that something set, they lose the South Carolina game, for example, which is not outside of the realm of possibility, or mm-hmm. you drop a game here or there, there will be this sort of step. Back, sort of, like I, I talk to people now. Uh, I talk to people now, and they're like, "Kirby's going to do it, man. Kirby, Kirby's the guy. We got it." And I get it. There's a lot of empirical evidence about uh, turning that direction with recruiting, and, and clearly last year was something amazing. There is still, I, I feel that like there is now so much expectation on this team that a natural step backward or even to the side is going to feel less acceptable than it might have been had last year and specifically the loss that ended last year happened. Uh, do you think that I am being too fatalistic about that idea? It just kind of feels like if they don't go undefeated or at least just lose once and then win the SEC East and win the SEC Championship game, people are going to be like, here we go again. Do you see that at all? Or are people just, you just think there's there's just rosiness across the board? I don't think you're being fatalistic. I'd say cautionary and necessary cautionary. I think people do need to kind of take a step back and not like expect this team to do exactly what it did last year, that it doesn't, you know, I mean, we're talking the AP poll came out Monday and Georgia's number three, you know, Alabama, then Clemson, then Georgia. And I mean, I, I can see it, but like I said, how much of that is also based on the schedule. If, Georgia's schedule were a lot more difficult on paper. You know, if they had to go to Auburn, if they had Alabama on the schedule, you know, and basically 
if they had Alabama scale, um, if they had a Notre Dame this year rather than Middle Tennessee State and UMass and whatever, would people be looking more at these warts that we've talked about, these these potential warts, and say, ooh, you know, I, I think, you know, I'll just be happy to get back to Atlanta and, you know, take our shot at Alabama. Instead, yeah, there's this over-exuberance. But um, I, I, I think it also let's say it is quote unquote disappointing this season. It, it would depend on how it plays out. I mean, is it because of injuries like 2013 people forget that team coming off that devastating loss to Alabama and the SEC championship game, that team was highly ranked early in the season and they stumbled against Clemson in the opener, but then beat LSU and South Carolina to top 10 wins. And, and they were three and one at that point. Then they barely survived Tennessee, at which point the injuries just got ridiculous and they finished that year eight and five. So there wasn't even, I've kind of wondered whether there actually wasn't at that point in 2013, that sense of, you know, man, we missed our shot last year. Did, did people think in 2013, the same way they are now, um, Probably not because that 2013 recruiting class wasn't very good. But but they thought this um, way. They thought this way after yeah. Rick's second year when they won the SEC title. Yes. Yeah. And they they did recruit pretty well, but then couldn't quite. They couldn't quite get back to that level. But they kept returning. There was enough of a tease, like 2008 preseason number one. Um, you know, they, they they had some really good years there. There, I, I do think that last year buys them some credibility that if they do stumble a bit more than people expect this year, people are still going to say, well, you know, we've got the right coach and look how we're recruiting. We'll be back next year. We just didn't win this year uh, the way we expected, but we'll be back. Um, We're of course potentially wasting our breath talking about that plausibility when they (laughs) could go 12 and 0 and, you know, follow the Alabama model. That's the problem is a lot of people are going to also now look at Alabama's third year. And the fact, I think that was when Saban won his first championship at Alabama. And so if they don't do that, people are going to be saying, ooh, you know, maybe he's not Nick Saban when it's just, it's not fair. You can't. Well, this is the problem. This is the problem of, this is the problem of trying to be Alabama, right? When you try to be Alabama, you actually have to be Alabama and Alabama is perhaps the best sports program in all of North American uh, major sports over the last like 15 years. Like what they're doing, nobody does. And that's the, that's the, what George has put up for itself is okay. No, now you have to be Alabama and there's literally one Alabama and even they barely hung on. Yeah. Yeah. But Georgia is, you know, I mean, tell me what, when they're not doing what Alabama did. I mean, they're recruiting. Well, they had a great second year. They almost won the whole thing. Um, they're even like sort of inching towards the Alabama mentality when it comes to spending and facilities, Kirby smarts contract gives him that leverage to, if Georgia does like, you know, say, well, I don't know if we really need a new weight room where Kirby's market say, oh, it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I think we really need a new weight room. <laughs> so that kind of stuff. Uh, so they are again, following that blueprint. I think these are just really really good times. And then people are looking at Nick Saban's age and Kirby Smart's age and saying, Ooh, we really like the way this is setting up. Just please don't have Dabo Swinney tech, the Alabama job. And, <laughs> and please don't have Dan Mullen and Jeremy Pruitt be the perfect choices by the, the two other programs in the East with great resources. 
Well, I like the idea of people looking at Kirby Smart and thinking, wow, he's young enough to do this for a long time because he's two months younger than me. So he's my age. And anytime they get someone gets called <laughs> young, that's my age. That makes me feel uh, pretty good. Uh, Seth, you are uh, the I've, I've been no offense to your colleagues, but you remain as someone that follows Georgia football uh, very closely and frankly, as a fan of good writing and journalism um, and someone that occasionally okay. tries to practice that myself, you are uh, the best. So by all means, um, uh, please, uh, everyone subscribe the athletic if you're not you will be upset you are making you are making you know what you're making baby jesus cry if you do not uh, subscribe <laughs> to the athletic so just know that but just don't read Stu mandel or any medill graduates do not read anyone from uh, from the from northwestern university uh seth thank you so much as always uh i will see you we're due for drake's next week and i'll, I'll, let, I'll let you know how much of a yes. terrible mistake that we made uh, advising you to go to the athletic <laughs> That's our off-the-record conversation. Oh, wait, oh, right. Yes, sure. Off the record. Yes. Stop recording. <laughs> um, all right, Seth, uh, thanks a lot. This was a great time, and uh, have a great season, and good luck with everything. Anytime, Will. Thanks a lot. And thanks so much for listening. Make sure to give Seth a follow on Twitter, at Seth W. Emerson, if you don't already, and subscribe to The Athletic to read his in-depth articles on the Georgia Bulldogs throughout the season. You can also subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review of what you think of our show, and we will read it on a future episode, I promise. If you're socially inclined, social media, I mean, our podcast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all with the same handle, at WSLS Podcast. And check out our website, too, WSLSPodcast.com. We have some shirts, some T-shirts that we will be selling on our website. There's actually a proof of what they look like, and it's listed on our Facebook page. And so far, they've gotten some pretty good reviews from our listeners. We're going to have very few of them because we weren't sure if anybody would like them or order them. You know how that goes. But uh, keep an eye out for those. And that'll do it for this episode. Tony, Will, and I will be back later this week. I think it'll be published on Wednesday. So you get two episodes this week of the Waiting Since Last Saturday podcast. And I just want to say thanks so much to Will and Seth for taking time out of y'all's busy, busy schedules for sitting down and delivering this to our audience. I know I enjoyed editing it, and I know they're going to enjoy, or they already heard it because it's the end. They enjoyed listening to it. Anyway, that's enough for me. We'll see you on campus very soon, and as always, go dogs. Go dogs.